These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. It is impossible for us to truly know the dreams of anyone other than ourselves. If we wonder as to the inner working of the subconscious mind of even our closest friends and lovers, we must rely first on them remembering the dream, though most dream recollections experience significant gaps and alterations, if they're recallable at all, we must then rely on them to transmit the lived experience of their private mind into language, which is itself an imperfect mapping of a culture's set of concepts, and which shapes, but is not identical to, the experience of an individual's inner mind. And then, of course, even with the best of languages, our interlocutor must transform the dream into a narration of some sort, with certain aspects highlighted and others omitted, and for us to then interpret as the hearers, translating our friend's narration into something interpretable in our own mind, an interpretation which we're not all equally skilled in, and in any case, the resultant idea will never sit as comfortably in the second mind as it did in the mind which generated it. All this is, of course, far worse when considering ancient Mesopotamian recordings of dreams. Not only is it produced by a culture, worldview, and lived experience alien to our own, it's recorded in one of the less comprehensible written forms of language ever devised by humanity. In fairness, cuneiform was the first written form of language ever devised by humanity, so it's perhaps understandable that they didn't get it quite right just yet. And yet, through the chain of dreamer, scribe, archaeologist, translator, and now podcaster, we can, if dimly, access a decently sized collection of recorded dreams, along with their interpretations as given by the ancient scribes. Now, dream interpretation was a pretty big deal in the ancient world, and seems to have only grown more popular as we get into later periods. Because of this, the subject of dreams will need to be looked at over multiple episodes. The actual interpretation is mostly going to be the subject of some later episode in the future. Before we get into what it all means, though, I thought it'd be interesting just to read through some of the surviving dream accounts, sort of as a genre of literature. Because for all the attention paid by both ancient and modern scholars to the interpretation of ancient dreams, the texts we have written down are not a representative and raw collection of actual dreams experienced by a random sampling of ancient peoples. Each one of them was written for a specific purpose deliberately composed, and often published for an audience beyond just the dreamer and his interpreter. Indeed, many of the most famous dreams were likely never dreamed at all and occurred in fictional contexts, such as the many dreams of the Gilgamesh cycle, and the entire epic of era that we're going to see next time was in fact framed as a dream. Now, dreams themselves are an interesting subject for literature because, in a sense, they're nearly universal. 
nearly all mammals seem to dream, not just humans. And there are researchers claiming to have detected dreams or dreamlike states even in a range of lower animals, from fish to spiders. But beyond just having dreams, as far as I can tell, nearly every culture has some sense that dreams are somehow inherently meaningful, and often supernaturally so. And that's even up into our own day with Carl Jung on the academic side and a whole bunch of spiritualists in the guise of a thousand faiths still to this day promoting dream interpretation to discover truths hidden in your soul or folks touting prophets who receive nocturnal revelations. And nor can I discount all of this with my usual skepticism. I don't talk about it much, but I have on multiple occasions had extremely specific and sometimes unusual dreams, which later appeared to me to come true, down to the detail and with an attached feeling. In my own case, I avoid drawing firm conclusions, since I know that I'm not a reliable witness to my own dreams, and it could well be psychological trickery. But what I can say is that whether or not any supernatural component to dreaming exists, the feeling of meaningful dreams and the feeling of predictive dreams are both common across the world, across at least a noticeable percentage of all human dreamers. Now, I'm no anthropologist, but it seems to me that you're about as unlikely to find a society without any burial practices, of which there are vanishingly few, as you are to find a society that doesn't believe in at least some dreams being significant some of the time. Both, of course, are deeply connected to the ideas of religion, and in neither case is it totally clear why it should be so universal, even if the forms of both burial and dreaming interpretation often change. But for all that universality, and as fascinating as it is, it's just as interesting to note that the forms often do change. Nowadays, dream interpretation is sometimes touted as being applicable to any dream, by any dreamer, though admittedly it's hard to separate the scams from the earnest folk among that lot. I suppose that's always been the case, the scammers running around everywhere, but in ancient Mesopotamia, the mystical focus, at least in surviving writings, is not so much about the inner thoughts of the dreamer, but about prognostication and divine communication. We still do have some of that, various beliefs of dreams coming true later on, but this was taken far more seriously in the ancient world than it is today, and by the late period which is where we're at now in our timeline, we have a text called by modern scholars a dream book, which serves as a priestly guide for dream interpretation. But like I said, we're going to save matters of actual interpretation of dreams for a later episode, probably around the time we cover the book of Daniel in the Babylonian period. Today, we're going to read dreams as voices of ancient people crossing the span of millennia, which I think is, in its own way, almost more fascinating than how they actually interpreted these dreams.
Now, of the relative handful of dream accounts which have survived to this day, far and away the smallest component of our corpus of dreams is dream accounts from ordinary people. And because ordinary people typically only had a single copy of their documents, these are also typically the most fragmentary and untranslatable. For instance, we have a two-column document which appears to contain in the first column the comments of one man, and in the second column appears to be some sort of reply. We have no context for any of this, because what we have in both columns is only the middle, with top and broad bottom broken off. It begins midway through the description of a dream. The man is saying, Rushes were rising for me. Rushes were growing for me. A, a reed planted alone was shaking its head at me. Several reeds planted together split apart for me. In the forest, a tree has raised itself for me as high as heaven. And at this point, we lose the text for a bit, and when we get it back, we're into what appears to be the reply. As another man says, my brother, your dream is not good. One should not interpret it. Rushes were rising for you? Rushes were growing for you? It symbolizes a robber raising his head for you in ambush. A reed planted alone shaking its head for you symbolizes something else, but we can't read it. Now, for me, this is fascinating. I have these recurring dreams, and of course, nothing is supposed to be less interesting than people telling you their dreams, but I have recurring dreams about wandering through impossibly large airports or malls or places like that, and I can't help but wonder if wandering through a field of reeds is fundamentally the same type of dream, but of course this ancient person would have never wandered through a large airport or a mall. Maybe this is just the same dream in a different context, or if I had a dream about a reed field, would I experience it in the same way as this guy? I'm getting at sort of how much of my internal experience is shared with the internal experience of a guy 3,500 years ago. Pondering that too much is going to get us off topic, but in a way it's also the whole point of studying dreams. But again, the answer is unknowable from these fragments. As we will discuss, this might be the only totally genuine dream we look at today. It is crucial that this dream is being interpreted, because we don't ever seem to hear about uninterpreted dreams, those being considered unimportant in ancient times. Often, in fact, we don't hear about the dream itself, as in this letter between two men, also from the old Babylonian period. Letter to Banam from Nur-Sin. Buy one ram and sacrifice it in the something of Adad, because this is why you saw it in a dream. Also, please open the dike outlet adjacent to the field. Most men were illiterate in this period, therefore writing was costly, meaning that the most pragmatic things are typically the subjects of commoners' letters. The content of the dream is in most cases secondary to the meaning, and if there was no meaning, 
then how much of your limited income were you going to pay to preserve and broadcast the pointless vision to the world? But as I said, the smallest portion of surviving dream literature is commoners telling their dreams to other commoners. These are recorded typically in letters because they want either to take action based on the meaning of the dream or to have someone interpret the meaning for them so that they can take action. A proverb from the ancient proverb collections points us to the importance of this, reading, If a man who has seen a dream does not retain it, his God will be angry with him. It isn't clear what the ancients thought the source of meaningless dreams was, but they clearly believed that meaningful dreams were messages from the gods. This idea is solidified by a much larger section of the surviving dream accounts, stories of dreams which are, shall we say, heavily composed. In an earlier draft of this episode, I split this section into dreams presented in fictional accounts, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, and dream accounts presented in government accounts, such as the records of various kings. But then I remembered that Ancient Mesopotamians considered Gilgamesh to have been a king on par with someone like Hammurabi. And if men in later periods didn't have the deeds to match those ancient heroes, that didn't mean that the ancient heroes were fictions, but that later men were inferior to earlier men. Since nowadays we don't think that these men, if they existed, actually went on their adventures as written, we assume that these dream accounts are poetic inventions, but it does at least tell us that writers from a very early period were familiar with dreams and thought them to be, at least sometimes, significant. On the other side of it, it's also important to remember that the presumed historical accounts of kingly dreams are, at best, unconfirmable as actual dreams. We have far more kingly dream accounts, ranging from the grandiose and mythological all the way to the relatively straightforward, than we do of commoners. But whereas a commoner, in a letter to his brother requesting interpretation, has a motive to be as honest as possible, because you want a real interpretation of this dream that you think is important, there exists the possibility that a king could present a dream to his courtiers or his people or to the historical record in such a way as to justify or glorify his pre-existing agenda. We can well imagine that at least some royal dreams may have been invented whole cloth, and others could have been massaged intentionally or otherwise. Similarly, we know that there was a practice of reporting dreams to kings. Certain types of priests had a talent for inducing prophetic dreams, while regular courtiers were, in some courts, encouraged to come forth with any dreams which might contain warnings. The Neo-Assyrian king Esarhaddon explicitly includes a clause to this effect in one of his treaties with a newly subject state, and just listen to this list. 
If any of you hears some wrong, evil, unseemly plan which is improper or detrimental to the crown prince designate Ashurbanipal, son of your lord Ashurhaddon, king of Assyria, whether they're spoken by his enemy or his ally, by his brothers, by his sons, by his daughters, by his brothers, by his father's brothers, his cousins, or any other member of his father's lineage, or by your own brothers, sons, or daughters, or by a prophet, an ecstatic, a dream interpreter, or by any human being whatsoever and conceals it, does not come and report it to the crown prince designate Eshurbanipal, son of Eshurhaddon, king of Assyria, then terrible things are going to happen to you. You're in violation of the treaty. It might be paranoia in this case that the king wants treasonous dreams and prophecies reported to him but it's likely also an indication that these were taken extremely seriously but of course we can also see the incentive that might exist for a courtier to alter or wholly fabricate a dream just as for the kings no one can confirm whether or not you actually dreamed something. So maybe just, you know, omit the part in your dream where you saw yourself sitting on the royal throne. Or maybe you can make up a nice-sounding dream that affirms some plan that the king was already hoping to do. Now, our evidence for courtly dreams seems to come in batches, with some eras having essentially no known mentions, and others having a decent number of them. But it isn't clear if this is because dreaming came in and out of fashion over the centuries, or if this is just an artifact of what archaeology has recovered. For example, we have a fairly significant body of letters written to the royal court of Zimri Lim and Mari around the time of Hammurabi. And of these, there's a good handful of people reporting their dreams to the king. Now, though I've just been speaking of the incentive to alter dreams, this one report from an upper-class lady in Mari seems perhaps to be decently genuine. The letter reads, Speak to my lord, thus Aduduri, your maidservant. Since the peace of your father's house, I have never had this dream. There were my signs before, in my dream, I entered into the temple of Belet Ekalim, which is a goddess governing dreams, among other things. And Belet Ekalim was not in residence, nor the statues before her present. And I saw this and went on weeping. This dream of mine was in the evening watch. Again I dreamt, and Dada, the priest of Ishtar Pishra, was on duty at the gate of Belet Ekalim, and an eerie voice was crying this over and over, saying, Come back, O Dagan, come back, O Dagan. This it was crying over and over. Moreover, the ecstatic priestess arose in the temple of Anantum, and thus spoke, saying, Oh, Zimri Lim, do not go on an expedition. Stay in Mari, then I alone will take responsibility. The Lord must not be negligent in guarding himself. 
I myself hereby seal my hair and fringe and send them to my lord. Now that hair and fringe at the end are seals of her identity and assurances of veracity. No idea which military expedition the lady was warning about, but it is a pretty neat and vivid-sounding dream. Could it be made up? Maybe. I think it feels kind of legit. Who really knows? In another of the Mari letters, there is a similar but more politically blunt dream recorded. Reading, On the very day I send this tablet of mine to my lord, Malik Dagan of Shaka, which is near Mari, came here to tell me, In my dream I, along with the man accompanying me, was set to go from Sagaratam district through the upper district to Mari. Ahead of me, I entered Turka. As I was entering, I entered into the temple of Dagon, and I went prostrate before Dagon. During my prostration, Dagon opened his mouth to say this, Have the Yemenite kings and their troops made peace with the troops of Zimri Lin, who has come up? I said, they did not. Just before I left, he said, Why are Zimri Lim's messengers not before me on a regular basis? Why is he not setting before me full reports? Had it been otherwise, long ago I would have delivered the Yamanite kings to Zimri Lim's hand. Now go. I am sending you to Zimri Lim, and you are to tell him... Send your messengers to me, and send a full report before me, and I will set before you the Yamanite kings, having them wriggle in a fisherman's wooden casket. This is what the man saw in his dream, revealing it to me. The idea, of course, of a king sending reports to the main temples of his activities was a pretty common one in Mesopotamia that I don't think we've mentioned before on the show. On one hand, the priests needed to know what to pray for and what omens to be taking. On the other hand, the priests were usually members of and relatives of the ruling classes in the nation, so having news reports delivered regularly was important for their own maintenance of power. On the subject of possibly fabricated dreams, this one seems unusually straightforward and to the point, while also directly benefiting the person claiming to have dreamt it. So who really knows here? But it is important to realize that, at least in Mari, these sorts of prophetic dreams really are driving policy. A report from a diviner of Mari doesn't tell us a dream directly, but reports about an officer named Yasim Dagan, saying, Yasim Dagan had a dream. The dream is important and worrisome. I've had omens taken about his dream, and it was indeed seen. Omen takers must come here and take omens about the safety of the town. My lord must give strict orders about protecting the fortifications. So a town, in this letter, was going to be more heavily fortified because a dream was judged as seen. This seen was a category for divination. Dreams could either have been seen or not seen. 
Now, dreams which a person truly saw is, are dreams from the gods. Now, a dream that wasn't actually judged to have been seen, it was still experienced, but was considered to be the regular sort of nonsense dream that the mind entertains itself with at night. There were a bunch of different ways to decide if a dream was actually seen or not. For instance, dreams early in the night were less likely to be prophetic, but the specifics get super technical real quick. Dream interpretation was a whole subset of the religious industry of ancient Mesopotamia. And while it could be that regular people would sometimes just guess at the meanings of dreams, kind of the way you and I do when we have some fun dreams nowadays, professional dream interpreters were a staple of most royal courts and many temples. That's our third category, by the way, of dream reports, which we're not actually going to cover today. These professional dream interpreters took the dreams that they'd seen or heard about, and they put together some remarkable diagnostic manuals, as well as magical rituals, to diagnose the meanings of dreams, and also to do things like ward off evil dreams. These are very much in the style of other medical texts of the age, but they also will be the subject of a later episode, as I've said, because they don't tell us about dreams specifically, but about classes of dreams and their meanings. But what I do want to talk about is the fact that these dream professionals apparently had the ability to incubate prophetic dreams, both in themselves and in others. Now, we hear about this indirectly, all the way from the Sumerian period, where dream priests are one of many sources of divination, all the way to the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE. Alexander, you remember, died in Babylon, and a priest at the Temple of Serapsis in Babylon is consulted in order to determine what should be done about his burial, which, of course, in the case of Alexander, turns into a giant circus. But that's beside the point. One example of dream incubation, which goes horribly wrong, is during the Kassite period, sometime around 1300. A fellow named Marduk Marimki, lord of Matnamri, seems to have entered into a local temple. Now, from what we can gather, he would have been greeted by various priests and been the subject of various rituals, then escorted into a special ritual room. Now, this wasn't necessarily a dedicated sleeping room, as the subject would typically sleep on the floor directly but it was a place generally holy to the god where the dream incubation would occur. Sometimes the person himself, Marduk Marimki in this case, would then lay on the floor and go to sleep, and sometimes the dream priest would do so on behalf of the subject. Then, any dreams experienced would be far more likely to be considered authoritative, and could be interpreted immediately upon waking, because the interpreter would either have been the one seeing the dream, or could be right there waiting for the subject to wake up. However, in Marduk Marimki's case, we hear the following, recorded by his conqueror, Nazi Muratash. Marduk Marimki, son of Shamashuri, in a dream saw Marduk, his lord, in the temple, and the hands of Enlil, his lord, in the temple. 
he saw that inside of Nippur, a container of wine dedicated to the gods had ceased, was destroyed. With the sign of his lofty spear, and the wind or spirit of his temple, the Ekur, and of his censer, the gods crushed the offering, crushed all that approached in offering to Enlil. Now, in contrast to that, Nazi Maratash exalted the word of Enlil and all the cities that were in the land of Matnamri, which had been ruled by Marduk Marimki, who dreamed this ill-omened dream, were soon in Kassite hands. Both the rise and fall of the Akkadian Empire were, according to later sources, governed by dream omens. When Sargon was nothing but a cupbearer sometime around 2350 BCE, his master, the Lord of Kish, was receiving a horrible dream of his own downfall from the goddess Inanna. He told no one. This interpretation of the dream was far from subtle. The king was drowned by the goddess in a great river of blood, and so the king didn't really need an interpreter. He just pretty clearly knew what the dream was saying. You don't want to drown in a great river of blood. That's a bad omen. A few days later, however, Sargon received the same dream and reported it to the king. And it was the double coincidence of sharing that same dream that made it far more significant than it would otherwise have been. At least in mythic and ritual contexts, it was not unheard of for multiple people to share the same dream. Ashurbanipal, in his Annals, reports that on least one occasion, the goddess Ishtar gave a dream to both him and his entire army. And Nabonidus of Babylon once reported that Shamash sent a dream to him and to the people, though it isn't clear how many or which people he's referring to here. Thus, when Nebuchadnezzar demands that Daniel repeat the king's dream in the biblical account prior to interpreting it, I mean, his demand is kind of unreasonable there, but it's not completely arbitrary or unprecedented in the Mesopotamian ritual system. Sometimes it seems people really would get your dream in order to interpret it for you. But if the Akkadian Empire would rise on a dream, later tradition claims it fell from one as well. In The Curse of Agada, which I contextualized back in episode 21 and actually read from in episode 22, we hear that Akkad was initially blessed by Inanna and everything was going great. The goddess had more offerings than she could keep track of. But one day, an omen arrived. And there's good reason to think that this omen was, in fact, a dream omen. The poem reads, But the statement coming from the Ekur was disquieting. Because of Enlil, all Agada was reduced to trembling, and terror befell Anana in Ulmash. She left the city, returning to her home. Holy Anana abandoned the sanctuary of Agada like someone abandoning the young woman of her woman's domain. Like a warrior hurrying to arms, she tore away the gift of battle and fight from the city and handed them over to the enemy. 
Not even five or ten days had passed, and Ninurta brought the jewels of rulership, the royal crown, the emblem, and the royal throne bestowed on Agata back into his Eshumesha temple. Utu took away the eloquence of the city. Enki took away its wisdom. An took away in the midst of heaven its fearsomeness that reached heaven. Enki tore out its well-anchored holy mooring pole from the Abzu. Inanna took away its weapons. The life of a goddess sanctuary was brought to an end, as if it had been the only life of a tiny carp in the deep waters. And all the cities were watching it. Like a mighty elephant, it bent its neck to the ground, while they all raised their horns like mighty bulls. Like a dying dragon, it dragged its head on the earth, and they jointly deprived of, of honor as in a battle. Naram-Sin saw in a nocturnal vision that Enlil would not let the kingdom of Agada occupy a pleasant, lasting residence, that he would make its future altogether unfavorable, that he would make its temples shake and would scatter its treasures. He realized what the dream was about, but did not put into words and did not discuss it with anyone. Naram-Sin, according to the story, panicked from hearing all this, and thus the first great world empire fell. But there was a lot more to that story, if you recall, from many, many episodes ago, or if you've purchased the book History and Myth from Sumer and Akkad, now available on Amazon. It's the first part of the show, edited and put into book form. Spend money on me. Anyway, this last dream encapsulates all the issues we have with dream reports. Who actually dreamed this? It's rarely clear if the person themselves had a specific dream, or if a dream priest had the dream on the person's behalf. Beyond that, was any of this actually reported in any temple as a dream seen before, during, or after the fall of a cad? I mean, the poem tells us he realized what the dream was about, but didn't put it into words and didn't discuss it with anybody. How do we know it, then? Was this a complete fabrication, either as a piece of poetic literature about a historical event or generated by anti-Acadians as propaganda to shape people's perception of the historical event of the fall of the Empire? Now, typically on this show, I'm quite positive about the reliability of the written historical records that archaeologists have unearthed from ancient Mesopotamia, even when other scholars are more skeptical than me. I mean, all of our sources have pro-royal biases, of course, and other sources have other biases, but in general, I feel like we have the implicit test that much of our written records tend to agree with each other. History, overall, agrees with history, and many of those can also be confirmed in archaeology, which is a large number of separate, though typically partial, witnesses, all in broad agreement. With dreams, however, there's simply no way to verify the fundamental underlying narrative. I mean, I can't verify the dreams that my wife says she had in the morning. She could be making them up just to amuse me every day. And I certainly can't reach across the gulf of time, culture, language, and scribal transmission to verify the private mental states of men millennia dead. 
I mean, they could be telling the truth. My wife is probably telling the truth. But with so many of these reports affecting actual decisions on things like warfare, construction, interpersonal relations, medicine, religion, diplomacy, and crime, we can say that there was strong motivation to fabricate or alter the details of dreams, counterbalanced only by the fact that these were popularly seen to have been messages from the actual gods, and thus morally required honesty. Still, with all those caveats in place, I do end up thinking that a good number of the dream accounts that we've read today, they do sound pretty dreamlike, and some of them have contexts that suggest against fabrication. We ultimately can't know who was being genuine, but whether all of these are real, or all of these are fabricated, or somewhere in between, just by reading these reports, we're still managing to get into the minds, at least somewhat, of ancient people, which is really the whole point of the oldest stories in the first place. Did you think, when you woke up today, that you would hear from a person thousands of years ago report on what they dreamed? I mean, that's pretty cool. Come on. Anyway, next time we close up our little culture section with one of the last great myths of cuneiform culture, the epic of Era and Isham. Now, I've been wanting to do this one for years now, but kept waiting till we were finally into the Iron Age when it was probably composed. So join us next time for a bunch of divine speeches and soliloquies as the entire universe threatens to get destroyed by divine wrath. Thank you for listening.